Welcome to episode 429 of Troubadours and Rakan Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a wonderful conversation with British-based music journalist and author Chris Charlesworth. And we talk with Mr. Charlesworth about his work with The Who and David Bowie, interviewing people like John Lennon. He tells us a firsthand story of Keith Moon throwing a television out of a hotel window and uh, shares a lot of insight about the music scene and some of these geniuses he had the great fortune to work with over the years. He himself being a major contributor to our sense of rock and roll. A grand conversation with Chris Charlesworth from his home outside of London. We also have an EWSA titled Who? And a poem called Studio. All of this, of course, will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to be with you. Let's get to it. Episode 429 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Let it go 
some questions Lost in confusion Well I tell them there's no problem Only solutions Well they shake their heads and they look at me As if I've lost my mind Languishing in a hotel room, bored stiff and boiling deep with the tumult of transgressions built up for years and years before you were born. Small towns, villages, cityscape, ocean sand, mountaintop, riverside, you cannot hide. The television is thrown out the window. Downstairs, on the sidewalk, people are looking up to see the stars as they sneak out a side door into an alleyway and inside a big white limousine off to another scene packed with more people ready to party and escape their lives for a little while. They chain smoke cigarettes and sing about the rebels, the deaf, dumb, and blind kid, teenage wasteland, heroes, peace, love, debauchery. And most of us cannot help to be inspired by their energy, philosophy, their art. This is a semblance of life that makes sense, seems genuine, It propels us, rescues us, breathes life for real. I remember seeing The Who back in 1982 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at JFK Stadium. I was a high school kid there with my friends. I had been listening to their 45 on my parents' record player for at least one half decade. It fueled my sense of human contradiction and hypocrisy. Won't get fooled again. Its music and lyrics still resonate and drive me with the sense that we are on to the whole shebang bamboozle. I tip my hat to the new constitution, take a bow for the new revolution, smiling friends, change all around, I pick up my guitar and play, just like yesterday, and I get on my knees and pray, we won't get fooled again.
Hello? Hello, Chris Charlesworth, is that you? Speaking. It's so nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Thank you, sir, for taking out the time for us. That's a pleasure. Uh, it's uh, good to be here. <laughs> or good to be there, I should say. <laughs> and uh, where where are you at the moment, actually, in the U.K.? Um, I'm, I'm in a... I'm in a little village where we live. Uh, it's called Gomshall, which is um, it's about an hour southwest of London. Uh, in the county of Surrey, the nearest uh, big town is called Guildford. Wonderful, thank you. It's nice to, <laughs> to it's nice to know where where folks are. I'm in Scranton, Pennsylvania, as we speak. Myself, yeah, that's on the on the, on the, on the east coast. I'm not sure if I went there when I lived in America. I I lived in America for um, most of the 1970s, as you may be aware. Um, but I don't know whether I went to Scranton. I may have done. I don't know. I went to so many places. Well, you were based in New York City when you were working for uh, Melody Makers. That, uh, that's, that, that's right. Uh, are we on air at the moment, or are we just... Oh, yeah. This is... Uh, this is uh, oh, we are. Okay, we're talking now. Well, hello out there. Um, yeah, I, I, I had the, 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 the best job in the world, in fact, um, well, I thought that was the case. Um, from the middle of 1973 to the uh, to to uh, about the third or fourth month of 1977, I was Melody Maker's American editor, based initially in Los Angeles and then for much longer in New York. Yeah, um, this this was a a, a, a fantastic job. Uh, all I did was. Um, cover the rock scene or cover the American rock scene if you like for our British readers um, I was the third person or the third staff member of Melody Maker to do this job and as things turned out I did it for much longer than the other two um, yeah. it was just a, a wonderful uh, job I had to work hard mind and I had to be self motivated because I was on my own doing this and the apartment where I lived in in New York was, was my office. Um, so I worked from home, which everybody does during COVID now. But anyway, um, it was, and yeah. I just had to produce so much uh, copy or text week in, week out, and uh, have it messengered over to, to Melody Maker in London. There were no faxes or emails in those days, so it all had to be typed out on sheets of paper and uh, given to a, a messenger who put it on an aeroplane and and it got to London the next day. Every Thursday I did that for That's, all that time. That process makes it even seem more important, right, what you're doing, when you have to go through all of that phys physical sort of uh, transfer of the information, getting it to somebody on a plane across the ocean. Uh, now you just that, have to... That's right. So that it, it landed on the editor's desk on a Friday morning, um, <laughs> what with the time change and everything, an overnight flight, and there'd been this package that I put together with interviews with, all and sundry and show reviews and uh, reports on what was happening in New York on the on the music scene and uh, I'd package it all up and along with photographs by my usually by my good friend Bob Gruen you you may be mm, aware of, of Bob Gruen of uh, course, he's probably yes. the best known uh, rock photographer in New York uh, and he's been he's been doing it since uh, since the late 1960s in fact that. Uh, Bob was my photographer of choice. We became great friends during that period. We still are, for that matter. Uh, and I'd go on assignments, and I'd take Bob along with me. I remember 
we um, we followed Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review Tour in 1975 in the autumn of 1975 together. So a few shows on that, and then I'd rush home, type it up. Bob would rush back to New York to his dark room in those days. Of course, there was no digital photography. And then we get it all on a plane to London and uh, hope for the best. <laughs> oh, this is fascinating. I can't wait to, to get even more in depth with our discussion. I, I want to take a moment just for folks who maybe uh, don't know who you are to share a little background. Any rocks uh, musician or any rock fan certainly would, but there are those who, who may not. So let me share a little background. Chris okay. Charlesworth is a British-based music journalist and author, and between 1983 and 2016, managing editor of Omnibus Press. He is is particularly noted for his work uh, about and with the great band The Who, for whom he has worked as an executive producer. Charlesworth also worked as David Bowie's publicist at RCA Records from 1979 to 1981. Yep. Having started his career as a journalist on the Craven Herald and Pioneer in his hometown of Skipton, Charlesworth began writing about music for the Bradford Telegraph. That's right. He wrote for... (laughs) (laughs) This is all credible. (laughs) This is all a long time ago, but it's all correct. And and then again, Melody Maker from 1970 to 1977, being variously its news editor and its U.S. editor from 1973, based in New York City. And some notable interviews. I mean, this is an incredible list of interviews you did for Melody Maker. This this is about everybody who who was up for being interviewed. Uh, The only ones I didn't get was Dylan and Elvis Presley, actually. I got pretty much everybody else. Well, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, David Bowie, Led Zeppelin, The Who, Rod Stewart and the Faces, The Birds, Bruce Springsteen, Elton John. John, the Beach Boys, Eric Clapton, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, The Band, Black Sabbath, Slade, Paul Simon, Alice Cooper, Traffic Free, Santana, The Eagles, Deep Purple, Yes, <laughs> Frank it, Zappa, it, Iggy yeah. Pop, and BG, Steely Dan, too, among others. It's amazing. That list, that's like a poem. Um, I know, it, it is. It sounds a lot. But, uh, but in seven years, um, what, what you have to bear in mind is that in those days, Melody Maker... Uh, was a, was a big selling paper. In fact, it was the biggest selling weekly music paper in the world. Um, it doesn't exist anymore, thanks to the internet and computers. But in those days, at its peak, Melody Maker sold two hundred thousand copies a week. Um, wow! And um, the UK had a culture, a music press culture that, that was like no other anywhere in the world. There wasn't just Melody Maker. There was New Musical Express, which was hot on our heels, uh, selling about 180,000. There was another weekly paper called Sounds, which sold 100,000 a week. And then there were two smaller ones. Disc was one, and and Record Mirror was the other, sold about 50 each. So if you tot all that lot up together, you'll see that there were uh, about half a million music papers sold every week in the U.K., just in the UK, which is extraordinary, because today, now, 50, 60 years later, there isn't a single one. (laughs) Yeah, that's terrible. It's it's a tragedy, really, isn't it? But there was this culture of the weekly music press that I was lucky enough to be a part of. Did you, uh, when you were at Melody Maker, I suppose you crossed paths with uh, Alan Jones, right? Oh, yeah, well, Alan came a little bit later. He, He arrived while I was in America, in fact. And um, 
Alan went on to a, a, a very distinguished career. Well, he became Melody Maker's editor, of course, which I didn't. Um, I was just an associate editor, if you like. Uh, and then, of course, he went on to, 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 to edit Uncut for many years as well, which was a monthly magazine. Um, there was no culture of monthly magazines in those days like there is today, like Mojo uh, in the UK and, uh, and indeed Uncut. Um, there were only these, all these weekly papers, and there was a lot of competition between us to, um, to, to snatch the interview with the big star of the week and to, uh, and to get news stories as well about, about groups splitting up and um, groups going on tour and events occurring in, uh, on the music scene. And so uh, we were encouraged by our editor to get close to the groups, to to sort of befriend them so as we'd know what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I leapt into that. I, I, I loved it. I, um, you mentioned earlier on when you were sort of reading that bio that I, I actually left school and, and trained to be a, a newspaper reporter covering the sort of straight news stories that you would expect, you know, car crashes, accidents, fires, robberies, thefts, all, all the sort of things that you read about in, in, in regular papers and a bit of sport even. Um, but my, my, my hobby, if you like, my first love was always uh, rock music ever since I first heard Elvis when I was about 10 years of age. And uh, I'd always bought records and gone to shows. In fact, I played the guitar in little amateur bands, you know, uh, covers bands. Uh, and so I was always really keen on music. And then uh, when an opportunity came up to, uh, to, to, to join the staff of Melody Maker, in fact, I answered an ad in the back of the paper. Uh, and I went for an interview and the editor asked me oh, uh, about my you know, love of music and what have you. So I babbled on, like I'm babbling on now probably. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> no, this is fascinating. Uh, <laughs> I told him how much I loved The Who, which I did already, right, you know. And the editor said, good choice. And anyway, I got the job. This was in early 1970. And um, I got the job. And from that moment on, I've done nothing but... Uh, work within the the the, the music world um, how old were you like 19 no I actually I was 23 23 um, uh, I was 23 in 1970 when I got the job so I was quite old wasn't I? <laughs> well that, I don't know not really um, um, at, uh, so was most of the rest of the staff uh, we were all about the same age and, and a lot of us had similar experience insofar as we'd worked on regular newspapers on the newspaper in Bradford, I actually, um, I, 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 me and another guy did a did a column once a week called the Swing Scene, which was the nearest thing there was to a rock and pop music column in this evening regular evening newspaper, and uh, so I had a little bit of experience about writing about music. But the, the, one of the things I did for that newspaper in Bradford, which is a city in northern England. Um, was I spoke on the phone to Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones about this new group he was forming called Led Zeppelin. And I, I had to ask him how to spell it. <laughs> 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 and um, the, 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 I remember him telling me on the phone that uh, this, 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 they weren't going to appear on television and, and, make, and make singles. And this was very unusual at the time, you know, to, the concept of a group that wasn't going to rely on making hit singles. And and appearing on TV, and I said, why don't you want to appear on television, Jimmy? Uh, and he said, because the sound's terrible on the little speakers. 
coming out to TV. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he's an artist. I would have heard of Led Zeppelin, but my Led Zeppelin were not big. They haven't even. That just their first record was just released. Right, their first record, first album, Led Zeppelin one had just come out. And, uh, no one really knew who they were, and now I was giving them an, in- giving an interview. O- only on the phone, of course, but it was funny when I finally met Led Zeppelin and went on tour with them, I reminded them of that. Oh, by the way, you don't know this, but I interviewed <laughs> you before you were famous. <laughs> <laughs> what an experience. What to, um, you're part of the whole scene, obviously. I mean, to be an executive... Um, sort of producer for uh, The Who and... Oh, that came much later. That, that, that came much later, did that. Um, uh, whilst I was on Melody Maker, I befriended The Who. There were, there were two groups in particular that, that I befriended. Um, uh, one was The Who, the other one was Slade. Um, Slade, who, who never really meant a, a great deal in America... I was lucky enough to see them well before they were famous uh, and predict that they would be big, which they were in the UK. And something similar happened with Elton John, actually. I saw him before he was famous and uh, I, I gave him a good review, one of the very early reviews, saying this guy's going to be uh, very popular one day, and sure enough, he was. But uh, The Who were already popular when I joined Melody Maker. The, the, Tommy had come out the previous year and the Who were on a, you know, that they were on a flight to uh, to the heavens when I uh, when I first started watching them regularly. Uh, but I, I'd I'd already seen them um, twice before before I joined Melody Maker. I thought they were fantastic on stage because the the great thing about the Who was the live show in those days. They were just the most exciting band in the world to watch. Um, yeah, and. Um, uh, and so I, I sort of suggested to the editor, I love the Who so much, that if an opportunity came up to, to interview uh, Townsend or Moon or whatever, I, um, then could I please do it, you know, because I really love the group. And he said yes. And, uh, and I'd been on the paper. This is, this is quite uh, funny, actually. I'd been on the paper for about two months, and there was a Who concert uh, in a town called Dunstable, which is just north of London. And I went along uh, to review it for, for, for Melody Maker. This is the first time I'd ever reviewed The Who. It's the first time I'd seen the group as a, as a, as a you know, Melody Maker staff writer. And, um, of course, I gave them a really good review because they were, they were just about at the height of their powers then in 1970, 71. And, um, and about a week or two later, the phone rang on my desk in the office, and I picked it up. And he said, and so the voice on the other end of the phone said, hello, is that Chris? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, it's Keith here, Keith Moon of The Who. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> what's, he, what's he ringing me up for? And he said, he just wanted to ring me up to thank me for the good review. And uh, that absolutely floored me, that, that, that Keith Moon would ring me up uh, and thank me for giving The Who a good review. Now, The Who didn't really need a good review at that point in their career. They... They were already massive, you know. Um, but I thought, well, what a nice thing to do. Now, it might be that Keith was, you know, trying to sort of butter me up a little bit, thinking, let's get this journalist, this writer on side. Who knows, right? right. But Keith then said, um, let's meet. I'm, I'm, I'm often in this club, and he mentioned a club where he used to go drinking in, in Soho. Um, and he said, come and say hello. And, and I did, actually. A, a, a week or two later, I met him, and I said, oh, you're Keith, I'm... Chris Childress, the bloke from Melody Maker. Oh, hello, have a drink, you know. And then he said, look, we're doing a show in, uh, in Hammersmith, that's a suburb of West London. 
in about a, in a few weeks' time. Come along with me. Be my guest, right? And so I did. I went to this show with Keith in his Rolls Royce car. Right? Uh, and that night I met the other three blokes in the Who, uh, and that was it, really. I was, I was, I became the sort of melody makers Who correspondent, if you like. Uh, and so I, I saw them about another thirty times o over the next uh, few years, up up to the point where, where, when Keith died. Um, and I interviewed them all many times, and I went on, on tour. I traveled with them on, on the road and on aeroplanes and this sort of thing. And I got to know them all very well. And um, much later on, I got involved in, in, in the project which was with them, which was to, when their CDs were being reissued, sort of upgraded, if you like. Um, and I got involved in the, in the sequencing and suggesting tracks for bonus tracks and that sort of thing. And this culminated in the box set, 30 years of, of maximum R&B, and, and Pete asked me to, to get involved with that. And uh, in fact, I ended up being co-producer of that, which, which meant that I, uh, I, I, uh, I put the packaging together for them, essentially. I, I commissioned the text for the booklets and selected the photographs in the booklet and worked with the designer on it. and went through loads of pictures as to what picture we should have on the cover. And also I worked with, uh, with, uh, with, with, with John Astley, who was actually Pete Townsend's brother-in-law, in the studio sequencing the tracks in, in what order they should go over the four CDs and indeed which songs to put on and looking through Pete's library uh, to, to, to find uh, unreleased tracks that we thought would enhance the, the, the box set as a whole because we didn't just want to fill it up with stuff that people had already bought, you know. Um, so that was wonderful, actually, finally working for the Who. But in, in point of fact, I'd, when I left Melody Maker, I worked for a, for a brief period in, in New York with the company there that looked after their American affairs. So uh, by this time, I'd got my feet under the table a bit with the Who, <laughs> if you... And you know what I mean? That's an English expression. Yeah, I still love them. I mean, I I don't. I'm not as close to them nowadays. I'm retired nowadays, as I as I used to be. But I'm very proud of my association with the Who, and uh, and of course I've written several books about them too. I've got four at the last count. <laughs> yeah, uh, where could people find those books? Um, oh, oh, they're not all still available. Um, the most recent one was Tommy at Fifty. Uh, Pete wrote an introduction for this one. Uh, this one was published um, last uh, la la last year, well, two years ago now, actually, in, in 20, 2019. There is the 50th anniversary of Tommy coming out. And, um, well, you can find them on Amazon. Just, just, just key in Tommy at 50, and you'll, uh, and you'll find it. Um, Tommy at 50 by Chris Charlesworth. That's right. It's called Tommy at 50. Um, that's the most most recent one. The other ones are quite old now, but you can still find them on on Amazon, I think. Um, and and is is all the mythology around the the Who with regard to their you know uh, wildness uh, accurate? In to a degree, yes. I think it's exaggerated, and I think um, I think the members of the Who have done their best to exaggerate it because because uh, it's a good story, isn't it? Certainly, Keith was. Um, Certainly, Keith could be a bit of a handful. Let's say. <laughs> you always hear that story um, about how he he throw you know would throw televisions out of hotel rooms and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, I actually saw that happen once. Um, it was um, 
it, it was in uh, Charlotte, South Carolina, actually, um, 1971, after a show. Um, we're about eight floors up when the telly went out the window. And <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> you know, the funny thing was, after he'd done it, right, there was a tremendous crash. Of course, it was late in the evening, so there was no one below. But um, we knew that the... Um, the, 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 the night porter or whatever night manager would come up and complain, but Keith was a, a, a was kind of used to this kind of thing and dealing with this kind of problem. So, so when this bloke came up, he, he convinced him that it was an accident uh, and that he was moving the television from one uh, location to another, and it slipped out of his hand by the window and terrible accident it slipped out of his hand and fell out of the window what a shocking thing to happen <laughs> and he actually persuaded this bloke almost that it was an accident though it was and it was absolute it was funnier to listen to him trying to explain it away as an accident than it was actually chucking the tv set out the window in the first place um, <laughs> and, and then cheeky as he is uh, w w when this guy was asking, he said, oh, if you're going downstairs, uh, could you bring us up some more drinks, please? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then just as the guy was going, and, and perhaps another television set. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute scream he was, really. Uh, he, he seems like, you know, from what little I've witnessed on a video and the like, a very charming person, so I can, I can see that, I can see that. Um, we're, we're yeah, I mean, sometimes he could get a, uh, on, on your nerves, and I'm sure the other members of the Who, he got on their nerves many a times, because the amount of uh, money that was uh, expended, let's say, as a result of his misdemeanors, um, it came out of the... It came out of everybody's money. Out of the general fund, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Roger, who was the exact opposite of Keith, uh, Roger went to bed... Um, you know, uh, sober and and early, often often accompanied by uh, an overnight companion, if you get my drift. Mm -hmm. um, but by the by, Roger wouldn't break anything ever, and he only ever had a few glasses of beer. He he, he wasn't a, a wild man at all, and he he, he I think he got a bit uh, a bit miffed, let's say, when he saw the tour accounts at the end of the tour. And he saw <laughs> several thousand dollars and gone down as a result of Keith uh, Keith's behaviour, uh, and it came. He had to pay for it. <laughs> as did the other two. Well, let, let me let me ask you a question about a, another person that I I, uh, I revere really in terms of his uh, artistic capability and work is uh, David Bowie. What was it like working with with David oh, Bowie um, as his publicist? Well. Um, well, first of all, I should say that I I I, I met David and, and wrote about him when I was uh, when I was working for Melody Maker, of course. Uh, David Bowie e e emerged uh, in about 1971, um, became a big star then, uh, in the UK at first, and like everybody else, um, were, I I went to see him and thought he was he was absolutely terrific, um, uh, and Melody Maker was one of the first magazines to to feature him on the front page um, and predict that he was going to be a massive star. It was actually one of my colleagues, Michael Watts, who did the famous interview with him when David said that he was gay. Now, I don't, I don't believe he was, to tell you the truth. I think he was just saying it uh, because he knew he'd get headlines. And... Um, but that was what Barry was like. He was a master of, of, of manipulating the media. But um, 
So David Bowie and Melody Maker had a good relationship, and uh, we featured him many times on our front page. We had lots of interviews with him. I did one extensive interview with him in, in 1976 when I went on tour when he was, uh, right about the time the album Station to Station came out, and he did a, a tour of America, and he was, uh, this was what they called a white light tour when there was mm -hmm. only white light on stage. And I, I just as an aside, is this that uh, I went to see him in Detroit on that tour, and um, later on I read an interview with Madonna, and she said that the first ever rock show she ever went to see was seeing David Bowie in Detroit in in April, I think it was 1976. Yeah, that's where and she's from. I thought to myself, yeah. well, cracky, that's the same show I was at. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I could have been sat next to Madonna for all that. <laughs> I don't think I was, but she might have been just behind me. Anyway, Madonna Chicago. Um, so, so I already knew David, and I interviewed him then. And I'd met him a few times, like socially at events, you know, in, in, in clubs. So... so when I left Melody Maker, and, and after I'd worked for this company in New York that, that looked after the Who's Affairs, I came back to the UK, and I, and I worked for RCA Records uh, in their press office. I was the chief press officer there. And um, David Bowie, of course, was signed to RCA, and so he, he was by, he was the, you know, the biggest act on the label, and, and I... I became his press officer for about a couple of years, not very long, really. This was the time when Lodger came out and Scary Monsters. Mm -hmm. And um, well, he lived in New York he, at the time, and, and I was in London, so it's not like we saw a lot of him. But um, one of the, the, the David Barry was, was a very intelligent man. Yes, um, that's obvious. Uh, I, I think everybody probably knows this now. Yeah. He was very, very widely read. And although he was most famous for as a songwriter and singer, um, he, he was multicultural in, in, in a way that, I mean, he, he appreciated fine art painting, he appreciated literature, he appreciated the theater, he appreciated films. And uh, he could talk, uh, interestingly, on any of these subjects. And... Um, uh, he could charm the pants off anyone. He <laughs> he was very nicely spoken, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, he was very gracious. He was very polite and well mannered, uh, and and people just fell in love with him as a person. He could have been a a anyone, you know, not just a singer and what have you. He he was just such a genial, uh, interesting man to be with, and um, people like that are easily bored. And whenever I, I set up one or two interviews for people to talk to him, and in those days, it was like, you know, you get an hour with David Bowie, you know. I, I had to tell people you get an hour. And these journalists would say to me, they'd say, oh, I want longer than an hour. And I said, well, look, it's up to you, I'd say. Um, if you can interest David, right, if you can get him interested in you, um, then it'll probably go on for longer because he won't cut you off. He'll only cut you off if he's bored. Right? <laughs> so don't bore him, whatever you do. Um, and another thing I noticed with David was um, when he was being interviewed and what have you, he would talk to the, he would ask the interviewer things. He would say, have you seen any good films recently? Have you read any good books? Uh, have you been to the theater? Have you seen any good plays? So he would, he would use the interview to gain information that, 
for himself. He was having a conversation. Yeah, yeah, he'd have a conversation. But also, he was a little bit of a vacuum cleaner. Mm-hmm. Um, if he thought that um, the, the, whoever was interviewing him, interviewing him was on the same length, the same wavelength, then he might gain some information from the interviewer that might be useful to him in his career. Oh, wow. Okay. So if he'd say something like, have you, seen any, have you met any good photographers? Are there any new photographers around? And if the interviewer said something like, oh, yeah, there's such and such a guy, he's really good, then David might look up his work and think, oh, he might be someone I might want to take pictures of me. Right, right. Did you see what I'm saying? Yes, I do. Um, yeah. yeah uh, and it, it's very unusual for, for, for that because most, most artists, as I've discovered when I did so many interviews for MM, like they just answer the questions and that's it, you know. But Bowie was, was far more conversational um, in, his, uh, in, his, in his modus operandi. Uh, and I, I, I found that fascinating. And I also thought that... that, that, that Thought how how clever he was. Right, it you speaks to us. Yes, how, how clever he was. He was using the interview. Okay, it might be a bit of a bore for him being interviewed yet again, you know. But he was using the interview for for whatever purpose he could get out of it as well. Um, it speaks to his high level of intelligence. Died, uh, um, uh, you know, he 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 never struck me as being particularly healthy. I have to say, he, he, uh, when I knew him, anyway, he, he virtually chain smoked cigarettes. <laughs> 30 or 40 a day. Wow, wow. One after the other, one after the other, yeah. The only time he didn't smoke was when he was on stage. <laughs> so maybe that was the demise of his health right there? I think so. Uh, I don't think it's any secret that, that he was a heavy smoker. I think maybe towards the end of the life he'd managed to give it up, right, when he realized how bad it was for him. But uh, And it was cancer, of course, that... Uh, that uh, that felled him, you know, so there you go. Um, the three most interesting interviews that I did for Melody Maker was Bowie was one. See, when, when, when I interviewed, one time I interviewed him, he told me he was broke. He told me he had no money, right? <laughs> and that the only reason he was touring was to shore up his bank account. Now, this was probably a lie. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, he lived in, 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 in great luxury, you know, he had a you know, chauffeur-driven limousine taking him everywhere, and people who are broke don't have chauffeur-driven limousines. But uh, the point, the point was, he knew that if he said that, that this would stand out, uh, and it would be a headline: "David, I'm broke." Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Bowie says he's only touring for the money, right? And and so he knew that I'd pick up on this. Every any journalist would pick up on a statement like that, and it would ensure him of a headline. Wow, master, master. Absolute master he was at manipulating the media, I think. So as I say, David was such a great interview, because anybody who interviewed him would have come away with reams and reams of tapes recorded. We used tapes, cassette tapes in those days. And they don't know where to start. You've got so much great uh, quotes from him, you know. Um, And the other two was was Townsend. Pete, Pete was a fabulous interviewer as well. And he was a little bit the same as Barry, but not quite as much. But Pete was controversial. He'd say all sorts of things that had, uh, that had, uh, that, that had scream headlines. I hate the Beatles. He'd say something like that. You know? right. <laughs> and <laughs> wait, what, did he mean that, or was he just trying to get no, attention no, no, to it? Just say, Pete would make lousy records. Pete would say something like that. You know? <laughs> but, uh, I'm not saying I'm just coming up with that, or, you know, drugs are good for you. You know, <laughs> he would say something like that, you know. Um, and the other one, and the third one, of course, was John Lennon. Um, 
and Lennon was just too honest, really, if, if anything. It got him into trouble, didn't it? Um, um, those three were the, were the three best interviews. Um, and do, do I, you... I never actually interviewed any of the Rolling Stones. I, I, I never had any dealings with them. Do... Um, other, other reporters snagged them, but, uh, but my favorites were Lennon, Bowie, and Townsend every time. And, and was there a common thread that you found in all, all of them? A common uh, trait that you found in all three of them? Yeah, they were all they were they, they were all the kind of people in in in, in another li- in another life. Uh, if the educational system would be better, they'd have gone on to be you know, to, to, to to study philosophy at Cambridge or something like that. <laughs> they were all really bright. <laughs> and good people, would you say too? They're, they're, they're really bright, and you don't have to go to to, to, to get a, a degree to be bright. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, you're born bright. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, they were all born bright. They were. They were born inquisitive, bright. You know, and uh, could think on their feet. You, you know what I mean? Um, they could have been, you know, QCs, uh, you know, lawyers. Who knows what? Right, bankers. They could have made a fortune in any field they they choose to work in. I think they were all really bright. How about like egos? Uh, were their egos huge to the extent? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, yes and no, I, but yeah, you, you've got to have a bit of an ego to, to, to get to where you are, but uh, but I don't think any of those three allowed their egos to um, to engulf them, if that's the right way of putting it, you know. Um, they, no, no, and I don't think, that, I don't think any of them were vain either. I mean, David always looked good. David it was always smartly dressed and neatly combed hair and what have you so you could say he was slightly vain in that respect but it was only because he was interested in clothes and fashion whereas the other two didn't didn't give a hoot what they looked like um, <laughs> it's just interesting because some all three of these gentlemen that you bring up i think have uh, uh reached deeply many 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 human beings and will continue to through their work and so to hear how they were as individuals uh, and hear a good uh, sort of review, so to speak, from you about how they are as individuals is is, is, endear- yeah, is, is uh, nice. Yeah, uh, they didn't take fools, suffer fools gladly, as, as, the, as the cliche goes, either. You know, they were, um, they all knew that, 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 that they were uh, at the highest level of the of the of their chosen field, um, and um, and it was a privilege to get to know them actually and and to see them operating. Uh, um, there were, uh, you know, you can say they're all flawed. I mean, there's probably a flaw in in David that he smoked as much as he did. Um, they were all promiscuous as well. <laughs> That's, uh, if, uh, you want me to deal with that kind of thing? Well, um, you know, the opportunity all of them was were unfaithful to their wives, um, um, and, uh, uh, and and they were they were all extremely attractive to women, probably because of this as well. Um, uh, <laughs> But uh, they'd all they'd all seen. It's, it's, uh, it, I, I think that there, there's something must touch you in the head when you stand on a stage, and there's fifty hundred thousand people screaming at you. You know what I mean? Yes, um, yes. It, 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 it must do. You know, you've got to be pretty tough mentally to be able to deal with that night after night. The Beatles couldn't deal with it, of course. The Beatles had to give it up in 1966 because it just got too much for them and they couldn't hear themselves play. Uh, and so John really didn't have the experiences that, that David and, and Pete did uh, in terms of the touring arenas 
uh, and stadiums in the 70s that, that The Who did and, and, and Bowie did. You know, you know what I mean? He, yeah. he, mm-hmm. he gave up performing, right? So he didn't hear it. But, but, but Pete and David uh, uh, would have looked out on an audience of 100,000 people night after night after night on tour and, um, and pleased them, you know, as indeed to someone like Springsteen now and lots of others. Uh, I'm just talking about the ones I, I really knew. Uh, and it must do something to your head to see all these people worshipping you, mustn't it? Oh, my Lord, yeah. I, I mean, I've, I was lucky enough to stand at the side of the stage for a lot of these shows, and uh, especially with The Who, uh, uh, and look out and see this audience roaring at them, you know, as they were playing Tommy and Won't Get Fooled Again and their, their, their big hits and see the, the effect they had on the audience. And uh, it's it's quite something if you just stood at the side of the stage. So what it must be if you're actually producing the music that's that's creating this, this huge excitement. Uh, yeah, uh, as that, you that said. Must, that must, must be quite something to in your head, you know, to be able to do this. And uh, not to lose yourself in it, as you said earlier. Yeah, not to, not to lose yourself and to be able to hold it together, right? Um, I mean, The Who, one of the things, the interesting things about The Who is that even b- b- by the time they were made their first records in, in 1965, they'd already played more shows as an unknown act, if you like, than Led Zeppelin did throughout their entire career. Hmm. Uh, interesting, um, um, uh, the, 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 because they started as schoolboys. Right, so they're um, seasoned road warriors, so to speak. They know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. That when they first started, the, the, the only way to make any money was by playing live, and um, so they, 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 they've got uh, you know a thousand shows under their belt by 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 the mid sixties. You know, uh, Zeppelin's entire career, they did about six hundred, I think. So. <laughs> it's a, it's a, so the, the number of concerts they'd done uh, is what made them what they were. And it was the same with the Beatles, to a certain extent, when you look back at it, because the number of shows they did in Liverpool at the Cavern Club and in Hamburg before they were famous was probably about the same. The hours they'd put in learning their craft. Um, <laughs> Well, you anyway, know, I'm going off on a tangent no, here. What was the question? No, no, I, I'm, I'm try- I, I think uh, you're, you're answering the questions before I even ask them. You have, you've, you've uh, crafted a nice narrative actually in our conversation. We're, we're just about getting to the end of it because of time constraints of the show. Okay. But I do, you know, want to remind everybody we're, we're talking with Chris Charlesworth, British-based music journalist and author, among other things, and um, retired you know, now, really. <laughs> Uh, and I mentioned that I have a blog uh, that I, I do called Just Back Dated. And, uh, Are you aware of that? Yes, I am. And, okay. And how often uh, do you do you? Uh... Oh, I, I, I started it. Uh, I started it in 2014, 2013. My daughter got me to 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 do it. Actually, she kept saying, "Daddy, you're always telling me these stories. Why don't you put them down on paper?" So I did. I started this blog. And um, uh, and it's called just backdated because that's the, you know look bloody young but I'm just backdated after after substitute the who song. I love that. Um, I love that. And I've got I've got over nine hundred posts on it now. So some of it's new stuff, some of it's old stuff, some of it's memoirs. I review a lot of books on it because as I say we have never mentioned this, but after I left Melody Maker and RCA Records, I became the uh, the, the managing editor of a, of a company called Omnibus Press, which publishes rock books, 
and I wrote a few myself, and I was responsible for, well, five or six hundred books being published, I would think. Um, and so book reviews are kind of my specialty now. But I review the odd records or shows I go and see. Not that anyone can see many these days, unfortunately. Um, and so if anyone's interested, they can look at Just Backdated Blogspot, and uh, they'll find my, my writings there. And also um, Tommy at 50 is out there? Uh, yeah, 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 Tommy at 50. That's the, the, the last book I did. Um, and I'd be Tommy remiss... Will I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, right? You know, given all the experience you have and and all you know, all the work you've done to share uh, what drives and what uh, influences, what challenges the the artists that we all have come to look at as part of our lives over the last several decades. You, you know, thank you for all that work. First of all, that's a oh, huge component. Yeah, I love it. I loved it. I mean, I, I don't even. I was so lucky that I got paid for it. You know? <laughs> right, you are. You're doing something you love. I mean, I like writing and I like rock and roll music. And, and to, to be able to you know, bring the two together and, and forge a career through it was just a dream come true. I was so lucky. I've been so lucky, I have, uh, to be able to do it. And, uh, and I, yeah, I'm retired now, but I'm fortunate that I have a, some savings and a good pension from all the... Yes, I put in on, on on Omnibus, which is part of a much bigger company, um, and so I can you know live in a comfortable retirement. I'm 73 now, so you know I'm. Uh, <laughs> um, That's the new 53. You know, I, I, I understand. 73 is the new 53, so you're you're good. Yeah, to go. yeah, absolutely. I sit here. I'm sitting here in my little office, which used to be my daughter's bedroom in our house. I'm surrounded by books and CDs. And there's a couple of guitars here as well because I still play a bit or try to play anyway, and uh, and I love it, you know. You know, I've, I've loved it. I've had a very, very fortunate life. I have so, uh, you know. And if anybody's enjoyed what I've written, great, you know. And uh, there you go. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, Mr. Charlesworth. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours That's and Rock and Tours. Pleasure. Okay. All right. Thanks. Good talking to you. Nice talking with you again. Hopefully, we can talk again in the future. I hope so. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.
studio. A hole in the ceiling above the dark mahogany staircase, created as a Baldwin spinet, was tipped on its side to maneuver a position that would allow the piano to sit in the second floor studio, next to a wall adjacent to the door that leads to a balcony overlooking the very green garden of trees, bushes, and high grass. Show some emotion Put expression in your eyes Light up But if it's bad, then let those tears roll down And there you have it, episode 429 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Chris Charlesworth and these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, John Lennon, The Who, Led Zeppelin, Joan Armitraden, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care. <laughs>